Father, we are thankful and grateful for who you are, for this opportunity that we had to worship you, exalt you, and praise you. Father, I thank you that you call us to come to you, in front of you, to give you the worship you that you deserve, that you are the only true God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. I just pray, Father, that you will speak to us in a way that will move us, teach us, correct us, as you desire for us today. I pray for Rick as he speaks to us, that you give him the words, give him the wisdom, and open our hearts and minds to hear these things. And Lord, I ask you to give us a special revelation today to know you, Lord, deeply, so we can serve you. Lord, I thank you for your salvation. I thank you, Lord, that the work that you've done on the cross is sufficient for all sins. And Lord, that this salvation is secure because it is in your hands. And we are grateful for those things, Lord, that nothing and no one can take it away from us. I thank you again for today, for this day that you've given us. Help us, Lord, to focus on you and serve you today. In Jesus' name, amen. We're in uh, John 13, and we're going to look at verses, well, I'm going to read verses 31 through 36. Um, we may, and uh, let me read the text first, and then I'll give you the divisions, and uh, we'll get as far as we can. So, of course, all of this is going on the night that Jesus is betrayed, or the night where uh, they take the Lord's Supper, and he washes the feet of the disciple, disciples, he gives them this magnificent example that they ought to follow. He tells them that the deceiver is, is uh, coming, he's in their midst, and now he's going to go do his uh, deed, which is betray the Son of God. And now Jesus says this, beginning at verse 31. So when he had gone out, speaking of Judas, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little, a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, and that probably should be translated something like this, and now where I am going, you, shall, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the text is broken up into three parts. Verses 31 and 32 are about the glorification of the Son and the Father. Verse 34 focuses on his departure, and verses 35 and 36, the new commandment. And Jesus now uh, addresses the eleven. Judas is gone, and, he's, and John writes, so when, he had, uh, yeah, so when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified. 
after Judas had been separated, and now all you have here are those who are genuine disciples of Christ, he chooses to address them in this particular way. And the language that he uses, is, is it's very interesting. First he says, now the Son of Man has been glorified. This is a common a title that Jesus takes upon himself. And throughout the Bible when it's used, it is used as a title of the Messiah, and generally it's done in prophecy. So Daniel chapter 7 and many other places use that title. So he's referring to himself as the, the divine Son. This now is his glorification. And the way he states it is actually past tense. Now the Son of Man literally has been glorified, is what he says. And he says it twice in this verse and once in uh, verse 32. So now the Son of Man has been glorified. The Son of Man has been glorified. If he is glorified, or was glorified, then why, why would he do that? Why would he speak in past tense language? If he is talking about the events that are unfolding before the disciples. One commentator writes this, he says that it's an event, what Jesus is referring to is an event that started, is not yet completed, although certain of completion. The cross now is inevitable. The, the events that are going to lead us to the cross now, they've been set in motion when Judas leaves. As soon as Judas leaves, because now he's going to collect his sum of money and he's going to bring the soldiers. So it's already started, although it's not completed. He has not been fully glorified. The, the crucifixion has not occurred. He has not been laid in the tomb, and he has not risen from the dead, and he has not ascended into heaven. But the events are so certain that he can speak this way. Now the Son of Man is glorified. And of course, those events will be completed. We will see the Son of Man glorified. And that's why he says, now... The passion is beginning, in essence. The passion is beginning. Christ is going to be glorified, and it is certain that this is going to happen. But how is it that the Son is glorified? You, you could, this is a whole sermon, a couple weeks of sermons, if you consider. So just some brief things. How is the Son of God glorified in the cross well, of course, he is glorified in the cross because it is the ultimate display of his obedience to his Father. Jesus Christ, yes, enters the world. He becomes a man. He becomes just like one of us, except no sin. He humbles himself under the Mosaic law. So all of the sacrifices and rituals that took place, he bound himself to all of those things, served faithfully his entire life, served his God faithfully, served his disciples faithfully and those who were close to him, ministered to thousands of people. Yet it was the cross which was really his final act of obedience to his Father. So he glorifies his Father. Yes, in, and in glorifying his Father, he does something for us. He attains salvation for us. So as he, as he gives glory to his Father in submitting to his Father's will, he is simultaneously ushering in the reign of grace and salvation for his people. So he is glorified in the salvation of sinners. 
in his obedience to his Father, in his salvation of sinners, and it's in the complete salvation of sinners. Because there at the cross, our sins are forgiven, and the righteousness that is necessary for us to have to be justified is also provided for sinners. He also conquers our enemies at the cross. That's what the author to the book of Hebrews says. It says that through death, Hebrews 2.14, that through death, he might destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So he conquers the power of Satan. And in that, the Father, in that, the Son, receives glory. He disarms principalities and powers is a different way Paul puts it in Colossians 2.15. But speaking of the same truth, our enemies are destroyed. Death being the final enemy that will be destroyed at his second coming. Not only does he glorify his father by his obedience, accomplish salvation for his people, destroy our enemies, conquer them completely, but he also reconciles us to himself. We were at enmity with God. Right? Hebrews, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2 makes it very clear that we, Paul includes himself in this number, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But in the cross of Christ, Jesus puts away the enmity that exists between us and God. And even in Ephesians, he tells us that the enmity that existed between Jew and Gentile has now been accomplished by the death of the Son. He makes the two one people. So reconciliation, of course, with God, reconciliation with God's people. There, there are many other things that could be said, but uh, the, these are, I think, some of, the, uh, some of the most obvious ways that the Son is glorified by His death. The passion is just the beginning, of course, of His glory. Because after His death, He rises from the grave, and He's glorified there, and He ascends into heaven. One last thing. He was glorified in the cross because by means of the cross, he became the king of kings and lord of lords. That's exactly what Paul says. Listen to this in um, Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, around verse 15, he says two things about Christ. He says first, that he is the firstborn over all creation, in verse 15, right? So he is, he is the most preeminent above the created world. Firstborn doesn't mean that he's the first one born. It, it's a title of prominence. And then again, he says in verse 17, and he is before all things, and all things in him consist, and he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. So not only is he, does he have preeminence over creation, but in his death now he exercises an authority, a preeminence over all things created and over all things born new. He puts it this way more simply in Matthew chapter 28 when he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Christ in his cross is glorified by being enthroned as king. There it becomes visible to the entire world that he is the Lord of lords. His enemies even had to say at the cross, This is the Son of God. 
There was no objection on that day. So then, this is how the Son is glorified. And the Son is being glorified. And now, the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. And then he continues in the following verse. But let, uh, let me make some points of application here that are important. First, uh, and, and this is something that we, uh, we often have to remind ourselves of. It, it, it is this. Because by his death, Christ glorifies God the Father, the cross is a display of the goodness of God. And you think, to yourself, well, how does that work? What are you getting at here? The, the Father's desire... The Father's command to the Son was to go into the world and to die for His people. That's what the Son was commanded to do. And in that act of obedience, the Father is honored. Another word for glorified that you can use, the Father receives honor. In Isaiah chapter 53, it says, It pleased the Lord to crush Him. Speaking, of course, of the Son. It brought the Father pleasure. Why? Because His obedience would result in the redemption of sinners. You can't look at these things uh, in some disconnected way. There is the command of the Father and the Son obeys it. Therefore, the Father receives glory and that's it. No, there was a purpose. There was a purpose to His death that He might lead many sons to glory. That we might come to know God. And therefore, the, the love of God is really put on display. Calvin writes this. He says, In all the creatures, indeed both high and low, the glory of God shines. But nowhere has it shone more brightly than in the cross, in which there has been an astonishing change of things. The condemnation of all men has been manifested, Sin has been blotted out. Salvation has been restored to men. And in short, the whole world has been renewed and everything restored to good order. Now you can look around and say, it doesn't look like that way to me. But it is that way. It is that way. It's not a, uh, it's not a revolution. It's a reconstruction. He's, he's rebuilding. He is making all things new. That is what God is doing in Christ. And then in verse 32 now. If God is glorified in him, <clears throat> excuse me, let, me, let me go back to the passage here. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify him also in himself. If God is glorified in him, God will, glor will also glorify him in himself and the glory and glorify him immediately. So you have this if then, right? If God is glorified in him, then God will also glorify him in himself. Now we know that this, the father will be glorified in the death of his son. Therefore, if that happens, 
the Father will glorify His Son. What? The, what? Huh? Who's, who's, who's glorifying who here? Well, it's, it's this reciprocal glory. In His humility, the Son enters the world, and in His acts of obedience, He gives glory and honor to the Father. In other words, the Father is made known. We come to know that God is just and the justifier of sinful men because he sent Christ into the world. God is revealing something about himself to humanity. I am, I have, my disposition is to forgive those who believe in my son. He's revealing these things about himself. So when we see the son... Uh, in, in the Gospels, walking this sinful world and doing all of the things he was doing, yes, we see the Son, we see the person of the Son, we see him incarnate in Christ, and yet we see the Father. And we see the Father's willingness to redeem those who had fallen from their sins by sending his Son into the world. So the Son gives glory to the Father by his obedience. But then in turn, the Father glorifies the Son because He is obedient, and He will do that immediately. Now, we have to think a little bit here. Uh, what, what is John talking about? One commentator writes it this way, and then we'll take a look at a few passages that, that, that are helpful. He writes this. He says this about Christ. He says, Though his death, uh, excuse me, through his death, the Son of Man reveals his true glory, that he is the Son of God when he dies and rises again. And at the same time, his death becomes the means by which God is revealed. God reveals himself in the death of Christ. Well, how does he do that? By raising him from the dead. That is the glory that the Son receives. Because of his lifelong obedience and his willing submission to the will of God, God highly exalts him. So turn to Philippians, because that's exactly what Paul tells us. Philippians chapter 2, and look at verse 8. Paul writes, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So he humbled himself. He humbled himself and suffered for the sins of his people. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This, this is how the Father glorifies the Son. By lifting him up, by giving him a title that is above every name. The way that John uh, depicts this in the book of Revelation is with a lamb. There is a lamb at the center. And that lamb comes to receive the scroll from the hands of the Almighty. And once he receives that scroll, all of heaven worships him. 
That is the glory that the Father gives to the Son because of the Son's willing submission to Him. He exalts Him and gives Him this title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I, I, you know, I could continue reading Calvin. I could have just read Calvin's commentary on this because it's so good. Listen to what he says. He says, He promises, therefore, that when the ignominy which He shall endure for a short time has been effaced when it's done away with. Illustrious honor will be displayed in his death. And this too was accomplished, for the death of the cross which Christ suffered is so far from obscuring his high rank that in that death his high rank is chiefly displayed. You think, he, he on the cross, th think of this, okay, um, the, the, that you have this story in, uh, in the book of Numbers where the serpents are biting the people. And what God does is he fashions, he tells the people to fashion a serpent, put it on top of the pole, and um, those who are being bit, all they have to do is look to that serpent. And as they look to the serpent, they are delivered from the judgment that they deserve, which is the biting <laughs> the poisonous death that they would suffer. And in the same way, when the sun is lifted up and we see him, what do we see him on the cross doing? Well, he becomes, as Paul says, he becomes a curse for us. He bears the curse of the covenant. And when we look to him, and we see him there on the cross, bearing that judgment. What do we see? We see someone who is able to bear it. We, we don't see someone who is suffering outside of his own will and in a position where he is helpless. He came into the world and his purpose was to go to the cross. And what we see at the cross is not God defeated, but we see his victory. In death, he destroys the power of death. He destroys Satan. He deals with all of our sins. What we see at the cross is the victory of Christ. We don't see a defeat. And that's why he has to tell his disciples this in the midst of speaking of his departure. Because the departure that he's talking about, of course, the doorway to his departure is death. It's the tomb. And they would be greatly distressed when they saw this. Let me continue. Is so far from obscuring his rank that in that death, his rank is chiefly displayed. His ability to absorb the wrath of God and to bear the sins of the world, we see it there on the cross. Since there is amazing love to mankind, his infinite righteousness in atoning for sin and appeasing the wrath of God, his wonderful power in conquering death, subduing Satan, and at length opening heaven, blazed with full brightness. What we see are the effects of everything Christ has accomplished when he dies. Therefore, God glorifies him. And in God glorifying his son, people look to Christ, people see him as the Savior, and then where do they look? To the Father who sent him, who was disposed to send a Redeemer for lost humanity. So that is uh, verses uh, 
the first two verses, 31 and 32. The glory of the Son and the glory of the Father. The Son is glorified in His obedience to the Father, and the Father is glorified in the obedience of the Son, and because of the Son's obedience, the Father gives the Son glory, and He gives Him glory immediately. He gives Him glory immediately, first in raising Him from the dead, three days later, and then after 40 days, He ascends into heaven. But now Jesus says to his disciples, and and you see now why he uh, explains himself this way. Why he speaks of his glory first. Because now he's going to speak of his departure. And he calls them little children. This is the only time in the Gospel of John it's used, but John uses this often in 1 John to refer to the disciples. Little children. He speaks to them affectionately. Because the things he's going to say are going to greatly trouble them. He says... A little while longer, and I will be with you. Or I will be with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I go, you cannot come. Or you are not able to come. And as he says this to them, of course their their natural question would be, where are you going? But there's something very different here that he says to his disciples that he doesn't say to the Jews. In 7.33, he says this to the Jews. I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. So we know where he's going. Then he repeats himself again. Uh, Excuse me. Um, Yes, that's right. In verse uh, verse 34, John 7.34. Yes, that's correct. 734, he says, You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Now look at chapter 8, verse 21. Same, uh, John, same book, John. And in 821 he says to them, I am going away, and you will seek me, and will die in your sins. Where I go you cannot come. Now look at verse 23. And he said to them, You are from beneath, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you, that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. So again, there's this dichotomy. The reason why Jesus is speaking to them this clearly is because they have no part with Christ. They don't believe in Him. They are not from heaven. He is going to a place where they are not prepared to go, and they will never be prepared to go unless they turn from their sins. But He says to His disciples something different. He says, You will seek Me. And as I said to the Jews, Where I am going, or where I go, you are not able to come now. You are not able to come now. Now you can't come. Why can't they come yet? It's not their time. Their departure is not near. They still have many things to suffer for for Christ. They still have many things to believe in with regards to Christ. But now is not their time to go. They they are not ready to go now. And it it is in light of that that he gives them this... uh, this, this, um, um, exhortation or revelation 
that he will be glorified. Uh, J.C. Ryle wrote this, and it was, it was very personal to me this week. He says, The very moment the little child is left alone by his mother, it begins to cry after her and want her. So it will be with you. <laughs> that is basically what Jesus is saying to his disciples, and I experienced that very vividly this week. <laughs> Many nights, children crying. <laughs> And now, so, so, so think of it, right? Uh, um, if, you, if you change this argument a little bit, let's say you moved uh, verse 33 before verses 31 and 32. Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, I'm, I'm going to die, and I'm going to leave. I will not be on earth anymore. But don't worry, because it is through my death that I will be glorified, and the Father will be glorified also. And he will give me glory because of my obedience to him. And then their problem would be, well, who's, who, who will care for us and who will love us the way that you do? That's why you love each other. So he tells them in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. So he leaves them with the command to love one another. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples. And this is something that John repeatedly brings up in his epistles. Of course, he brings it up in uh, the Gospel of John here, but it's repeated throughout the epistles. In chapter 2, all over his epistles. We don't have time to go to all the places. Just it's, I think John is five chapters, right? You could read John in less than 20 minutes. You read it when you get home. It's your assignment. And look up all the places where he speaks of this commandment to love. But is it a new commandment? Um, turn to, uh, well, let's turn to John. Look at First John. If you turn uh, to the Gospel of John, and verse uh, chapter 2, verse 7. He says, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you. So, so th this command or the exercise of it is true in Christ and it's true in believers. Why? Because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. So what's the point that he's making? Is I think what he's saying is that you've been born again. You're not in the darkness like Judas. Remember? Judas left, and it was night, 
when he departed. You are not in darkness. You are in the light, and that light is ever increasing and growing. Therefore, love one another. But why does Jesus call it a new commandment then? If we have it here, of course, it's in the Ten Commandments. When Jesus speaks to what are the two great commandments, what does he say? Love God, love your neighbor. Why is it a new commandment? Because of the example. Love one another as I have loved you. Greater man, greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his brothers. And this is the example that Jesus gives. Jesus Christ exhibits the command as one, as a new one. Uh, this is a commentator, Hensenberg. He, he writes, Christ exhibits the commandment as a new one after he has come to the perfection of the manifestation of his own love. After he reveals the nature of his love, of course he does it in a cryptic way by speaking of departing, but what is he saying to his disciples? Y'all need to love each other. And he probably said it that way too, y'all. Y'all need to love each other the way I love y'all. By dying, by your willingness to die for one another. Laying down your life for one another. That is the pattern. Right? Leviticus 19.18 it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Right? That is a great command. But here, Jesus doesn't have just... In Israel, your neighbor was the person next to you, right? which was another Israelite. But here in particular, remember, the deceiver is kicked out. He's sitting there with his disciples only. Are we to love our neighbor, the person who's unconverted, who lives next door? Yes, we ought to. But this love that Jesus is talking about, he is talking about this, this is a love that we have for one another, for disciples. And it is to be a greater love than we have for the rest of the world. That is not um, contrary to what uh, God teaches us in his word with regards to love. We discriminate with our love all the time. And it's right for you to do it. So, I love my wife. I don't love other women like I love my wife. If I did, I wouldn't be married for long. I love, uh, I love my children, and I love other people's kids, but I don't love their kids as much as I love my kids. That would be wrong. right? We ought to love our neighbors, but we ought not to love our neighbors more than we love the brotherhood. There should be a willingness on our part to lay down our lives for one another. This is the way that we ought to love one another. And in, verse, in chapter 15, verse 12, he repeats it. And this is a, an entire discourse, so all the way up to the end of chapter 17, this is just one long conversation Jesus is having with his disciples. And there he brings it up again. Love one another as I have loved you, John 15. 12. And it is this way, by the love that believers have for one another, that the world will know that we are his disciples. I love what Ryle says here. He says, let us, not, let us note that our Lord does not name gifts or miracles or intellectual attainments, but love. The simple grace of love, a grace within reach of the poorest, lowliest believer, as the evidence of discipleship. No love, no grace, no regeneration, no true Christianity. 
And that is really the way that you can examine whether you are a Christian or not. John puts these examples before us constantly in his gospel. So he does this in chapter two, in his epistle. He does this in chapter 2, but in chapter 4 he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And when he says love one another, what is he talking about? Love one another who? Love other humans? Yeah, of course he's talking about that, but he's talking about the church. He's talking about the people of God loving one another. In verse 21 of the same chapter, he says, This is the commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. Must. You have to. You, you don't, we don't have the option. I don't like that guy. No. You need to pray till you like him, till you love him. Not, <laughs> more than like him. And, and do the things that display that love. First uh, John 5.1 Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. If you love the begetter, you love the begotten. If you love God, you will love his children. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us love one another. I didn't think I was going to finish all those verses, but I did. All right, let's close in a word of prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would help us, Lord, to honor your Son Christ, that you may be honored in our worship of him, not only today, Lord, but throughout this week and, of course, throughout our entire lives. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to submit to the will of your Heavenly Father, and to speak of your death in, in such a way that, that, uh, that makes it even appear there was a, a joy uh, in approaching the cross, as it says in, in Hebrews. And for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross, despising the shame, and now you are seated at the right hand of God. Lord Jesus, we praise you for your willingness to submit to your Father's will, even unto death. And we ask that you would help us, Lord. Believe and live in light of these things. Work in us by your Spirit. Give us confidence that your Word teaches these things. And help us, Lord, to apply them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing.